0: You're listening to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL and 980cfpl.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill.
1: Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. Today we feature our quarterly series, "What's in Season." We'll discuss old-fashioned baking and modern interpretations with Sarah Hood, president of the Culinary Historians of Canada and author of "Jam, Jelly, and Marmalade: A Global History." Welcome, Sarah. Hi. It's Wonderful to have you here today, Sarah. Let's start with many people's favorite gingerbread. Where
0: did this holiday
1: treat originate, and how has it evolved over time?
0: There are two types of gingerbread. There's the cake-like type, which survives in holidays like Hanukkah as a spiced honey cake, and the cookie-like type, which I think we associate more with Christmas. And that cookie goes very, very far back. Originally, it probably wasn't made with flour. It would have been a mixture of pounded ginger, sugar, ground nuts, and spices, something a little bit more like a fruit leather. Um, As for the cookies, they're very, very, very old. They probably started out without being flour-based. And there are uh, documents about Roman cookery using ginger in this kind of a way. Uh, Early on, it was probably thought of as a medicinal use. The ginger and the sugar together were supposed to have medicinal value. And in medieval Europe, ginger wasn't available to everybody. But they would have started with something that was almost more like what we think of as a fruit leather, really, than like a baked good. So pounded up ginger mixed with um, uh, sugar, rose water spices like the ones we associate with ginger now, that's a very medieval spice blend, the pumpkin spice blend or the gingerbread blend. Over time, the association with Christmas and the long tradition of cutting gingerbread out and shaping it became what we know as the making of gingerbread cookies. And there's a great source for the history of gingerbread if people want to know more about it. That's a recent book, I believe it was 2021, called First Catch Your Gingerbread, by a writer called Sam Bilton. She has come to speak to the Culinary Historians of Canada, although I believe she's based in England and she has all the lore collected.
1: Wonderful. Uh, what a history. And I'll never eat my gingerbread uh in passing without thinking of this conversation and its long history and all of the different things that have evolved in gingerbread the bread version, the fruit leather origins. I think you're right when you look at the etymology it probably wasn't <laughs> originally a bread type item. Very very interesting. Another uh old-fashioned favorite that is still around in many countries is mincemeat. My grandfather was from England and the holidays weren't complete for him unless he had his minced tarts and brandy butter. And why are they called mincemeat, Sarah? And aren't they made from fruit? Where did this meat idea come from in these tarts?
0: They are sometimes made from fruit. They're sometimes made from fruit with suet, which is an animal product. So not vegan, it's animal fat. And they're sometimes made with meat in them. And this goes back again to medieval times. And probably even before, but the spice mixture that we think of as a Christmas spice mixture or that um, pumpkin spice latte flavor, the cloves, the cinnamon, the ginger, the nutmeg, the mace, those are spices that were popular in places like Persia in deep antiquity. And they gradually moved up into Europe with the crusaders coming back from the crusades through the medieval period in Europe that spice blend was used for everything. So we've preserved it in holiday treats because that's something that tends to happen. People make traditional holiday foods the way they used to be made. But in medieval Europe, it was in everything, including meats. So you might make a meat pie with those spices we associate with uh, Christmas baking. And the mincemeat literally started out as minced meat with these spices and cut up fruit peels candied fruit peels candied fruits that kind of thing over time the meat part gradually dropped out we use the very old recipes and we try to recreate them as closely as possible the way they would have been done in the past. And when I say very old in this context, we're using 18th, 19th century recipes. We usually don't go right back to the medieval period. But we've had people taste test fruit-based mince pies and meat-based minced pies. And the people who are not vegan usually say, you know, we like it with the meat. We like it with the suet. It adds a rich flavor to it. So no, mincemeat was not always just made with uh, plants. It was also made with meat. How
1: fascinating. I'm learning so much today, Sarah. So I, I have to ask you about 12th cake. It's a real old fashioned holiday favorite and you know quite a bit about it. What is it and what is its meaning?
0: 12th cake perhaps is the origin of what we think of as Christmas fruit cake, and it's a fruitcake and there are old versions that are either made with yeast. So they come out something like a panettone, like a bread studded with fruits and nuts and things like that. Or it can be um, just with eggs to make it rise. In which case it really is like our fruitcake. And people forget that at one time, the 12 days of Christmas really were celebrated. And that starts on christmas eve december 24th and if you count it off it ends on january 4th and 12th night was the eve of the last day of christmas so there was a special ceremony for that and it's very very old on 12th night people would gather for parties so the idea of the 12th cake is to celebrate the last day of christmas 12th cake evolved over time itself a fruit cake that was often iced with a hard white icing became a wedding cake because weddings often were held during the christmas period and a christmas fruit cake and so that's how that custom comes down to those two different things that actually share a common character
1: Very, very interesting. I know my grandmother's recipe was a uh, a county fair award winner. It was used for Christmas cake as well as wedding cake. So that's very interesting. I didn't know that the um, harvest would have been busy and summer would have been busy. So wedding season would have been when it was snowy, I guess, when there wasn't time to work the land. That's so interesting. And my grandmother was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, and she is true to her heritage. She made the most delicious shortbreads, and she used brown sugar, actually, because her family was um, not affluent, and they used what they had, so butter flour, and they had brown sugar, because it would keep, they didn't have confection sugar or uh, some of the refined sugar, and it was the best shortbread I ever tasted, and she would make it in a tin mold, like a little pie plate and you would cut it like a little pie almost, and there'd be eight wedges, and each wedge would have a Scottish thistle on it, and it was just delightful, and I have some of those things now, and it's still very much part of my Christmas, although she has um, moved on to whatever comes next. So here, too, there's so many favorites. I'd like to know what some of your favorite old-fashioned holiday cookies are, Sarah.
0: I always do love to make shortbread because I grew up without much connection to a long family history. I've since researched it and discovered that I perhaps had more connections to my own past than I knew. But one thing was that my mother made shortbread and her mother made shortbread and their family, if you go back far enough, was Scottish. So I like to think that Scottish shortbread is part of my own family heritage. But I've also experimented. I have a big shelf of sort of holiday cookies and I also make um, sablés, which are a French version of a shortbread mixed with a sugar cookie and the um, uh, the odd thing about it is instead of creaming the butter and the sugar at the beginning you cream the butter and the flour and it gives it a different texture and I believe that's just out of the good old standard joy of cooking the sablé um, I also like doing Scandinavian ginger flavored cookies And there are lots of recipes for those. I like thin ones that I cut with a little bit of a frill around the edge and that have a bit of a snap. I love Snickerdoodles, which are a very eggy cinnamon cookie. You roll balls in cinnamon sugar, drop them on the baking tray, and then they flatten out. And because they're so eggy, they have a really nice chewy consistency with this sparkly sugar cinnamon outside. And um, I would also say... Bisco Chitos, although they're very breakable, so I don't make them quite as often. They're a Mexican variation, and they have lard in them, so they're really rich, but they're very nice. Wow, you're
1: definitely someone to know in a cookie exchange, then. Those (laughs) all sound delicious. (laughs) After the break, we'll hear more from Sarah Hood, President of the Culinary Historians of Canada, about why old-fashioned baking traditions matter today.
0: Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL and 980cfpl.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill.
1: Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. The show today is part of the quarterly series, What's in Season? We're speaking with Sarah Hood, President of the Culinary Historians of Canada and author of Jam, Jelly, Marmalade, A Global History, about why old-fashioned holiday baking matters today. Sarah, before the break, we talked about old-fashioned baking items and techniques during the holidays of days gone by. Can you offer some inspiration to bake from antique recipes? You had mentioned the 18th and 19th centuries before the break. And also, why is interpreting them, trying to understand how the item was originally prepared, important?
0: The interpretation of historic recipes is, first of all, a lot of fun. And second, it really does help us understand how people lived in the past. And I know many people are fascinated with those TV documentaries where people will try and live for a week in a certain historical period. I don't think there's anything that gives you as good a sense of how people lived in the past and also makes us feel closer to people in the past. I think when you're young, you feel that people who lived in the distant past were somehow different. But The more you understand how they did what they did, the more you understand that really we haven't changed all that much. And looking at how the recipes were put together. Of course, when people write down recipes, they don't always put in all the instructions. They assume that if they say put in an egg yolk, the cook is going to know how to separate an egg. And these older recipes are no different. They know that when you're creaming the butter and the sugar, you can use your hands to do that. They also figure that you'll probably separate the eggs and put the eggs in with the yolks first and then the whipped whites as well. So that's not something we would do in a normal cake. There are some recipes that specifically call for that. And what it does is it gives a lot of lift to the cake because in many of these older recipes, they didn't have baking powder. That was something that came up in the later 19th century as commercial products. To get a rise to baked goods, you would whip eggs. Or there were several other chemical-type products that people might even have made at home. And the process was rather long. And it wasn't standard. So today we can say we'll put in a quarter teaspoon of baking soda or baking powder or both and know exactly what will happen in older times, they couldn't really predict exactly what would happen. Eggs were a staple for getting baked goods to rise. And one of the fun things is that the older recipes often base the entire recipe on the eggs that you happen to have. If you're working with your own chicken's eggs, they may be smaller or larger. So they'll say things like take three eggs and put their weight of flour and half their weight of butter in so you are actually scaling the whole recipe using a balance scale to the weight of whatever eggs you have so that the ratios will all work out
1: That's fascinating because we think now we've got medium, large, extra large eggs, but Uh we don't think of ever seeing that in, oh, we would say use an extra large egg. We see that in a recipe, but we would never think of, I've got to reduce my flour because I'm using a medium egg, not an extra large. And so back to the question that I asked you, why it's important to really think about what people are, we're doing. And you had said, because we get to learn how they live. That's just one example of the everyday. Uh, judgment and discretion a cook would have to have and knowledge that we um, I mean I didn't learn that growing up I've heard it for the first time from you today but very very important. Sarah this show is called Food for the Future and we try to add the humanities to today's food dialogue so philosophy, history creativity. Why should we continue to interpret what recipe writers in history originally intended so that we can find the way forward together now?
0: I'm a great believer that If you don't understand your history, you don't understand your present. And food is one of the very easy gateways into understanding the past. And I have a very smart brother, John, who often says, if you study one thing in detail, you find yourself studying everything else. And that's certainly true of cooking, because if you study cooking, you're going to be studying social history, rules about rich and poor, international food supplies, international economies, reasons for warfare, many, many other things. And when I was born, even though it was only shortly after the Second World War, I thought of that as something that had happened in deep history. Now, the more you understand these deep currents, the more you realize that uh, someone breaking a teacup in ancient Rome, if they used teacups, has a much more direct impact on how we're living today than we think. And if you see things that way, you do tend to be able to understand where things are going. And at the very least, I think that knowing about the past helps us to have hope, helps us to see that human beings actually do have the capacity to make things better for themselves over time. And that when things get bad in history, often bad times are followed by good times or new good times arrived that were unexpected and that change things in a way that help people. Today, I think a lot of people are reeling with the fact that we've really moved into the 21st century since COVID has been receding. And I think if you look back in history, you can say, you know what, those disruptive periods were hard, but they led to other things that we wouldn't want to get rid of. So the shortest answer is I think the more you learn about cooking in the old-fashioned ways, the more it helps you to understand the people who lived a long time ago and the more it helps you both predict what's happening in our near future and also understand and accept and live with the changes that may seem painful now but may bring us new things to come. And actually, that's really what these winter celebrations are about. Um, Whether you're talking about uh, Christmas or Hanukkah or, for example, Diwali – they're about the light returning. And at the dark times of the year, we look ahead to the light. And I think that a long view of history helps us do that, not only in winter holiday times, but throughout the whole year. What a what
1: a hopeful message, uh, Sarah, To as we close our discussion on old-fashioned holiday baking, why it's important today. So as we spend time with our family and friends over the holidays, eating all of the traditional foods for our family or sharing with others. There's a lot of need in our city and across the nation and in the world that we think about that. And so your messages of hope are very, very well received. Sarah, are there any final messages that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: Well, one thing I would be remiss not to mention is that the Culinary Historians of Canada has a lot of online resources for people who are interested in learning how to bake things in an old fashioned way or in fact, how to cook any kind of food the way people did many, many years ago. So culinaryhistorians.ca is our website. And we have a section called Canadian Cookbooks Online that gives you very old Canadian cookbooks, including at least one quite old recipe pamphlet. And when I say old, in this case, mid-20th century, so you can bake some really good traditional 20th century Christmas recipes, we also have a video called Baking for the Victorian Christmas Table that's available to be purchased on the site. And that is a full lead through several recipes and it comes with a recipe booklet that adapts antique recipes for a modern kitchen. And we have a standalone Victorian Christmas recipes sheet as well that's available on the site. So there are lots and lots and lots of resources for people who might like to figure out how to bake a 12th cake the way they did in the 19th century or how to make a real traditional Christmas pudding. To those people who are curious or whether you just like to hear about them, I'd like to wish a very happy holidays, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, and uh, happy baking. Thank
1: you very much, Sarah. So something almost for everyone at the Culinary Historians of Canada website. And I know that I'm going to go to the site and look forward to what I discovered there. And I was thinking a lot of teachers would be really interested in it as well. Uh, when we're thinking about food literacy across the curriculum and how it would be very interesting in a history class or a social studies class to actually try to make things the way they did from whatever period in history you were studying. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah, for our delightful conversation today. I admire your expertise and I'm so very happy that you joined us to share your knowledge with me and all of our listeners. Thank you very much. It was our pleasure. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking about old-fashioned holiday baking and modern interpretations with Sarah Hood, President of the Culinary Historians of Canada, and author of Jam, Jelly, and Marmalade, A Global History. Each week, we leave you with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about? What old-fashioned recipe could you make this holiday season? Something to do? Search Culinary Historians of Canada for a Victorian baking video and much more. Next week on the show, we return to the monthly series, Food for Thought. It'll be Christmas Eve, and we'll discuss lessons from the farm, including gratitude, kindness, and a lot more with Dave Bolton, past president of the Middlesex Federation of Agriculture. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, professional home economist, and you've been listening to the weekly show, Food for the Future.
0: Thank you to our platinum-level
1: sponsors, Burnbrae Farms Eggs for Life and the Middlesex London Food Policy Council.
0: Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill.
1: Airs every Saturday at 8.30 on 980 CFPL and 980cfpl.ca.